Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns. You are listening to the prologue of When Diplomacy Fails' series on the Korean War. Let it be stressed again that, subjectively, these men probably did not seek absolutism for its own sake. They doubtless believed and found it easy to believe that they alone knew what was good for society, and that they would accomplish that good once their power was secure and unchallengeable. But in seeking that security of their own rule, they were prepared to recognise no restrictions, either of God or man, on the character of their methods. And until such time as that security might be achieved, they placed far down on their scale of operational priorities the comforts and happiness of the peoples entrusted to their care. American expert of Soviet affairs, George Kennan, writing under a pseudonym in his 1947 article, The Sources of Soviet Conduct. In the 50s, Americans are being induced to think that the world's ills are all caused by communism, and that communism must therefore be crushed. In the 40s it was fascism. What will it be in the 60s? And the 70s? Can't we get to the bottom of this? Both the communist and the fascist attempts at world conquest must be feeding on some deep-rooted human problems, and the destruction of the one or the other of the major world powers will not solve the problems. Historian C. Clyde Mitchell, writing in the International Journal in late 1950. Individuals need not believe all these mystifications, but they must behave as though they did, or they must at least tolerate them in silence, or get along well with those who work with them. For this reason, however, they must live within a lie. Czech political dissident and dramatist Václav Havel, writing in his 1978 essay, The Power of the Powerless. 
1979, as part of a contingent of Americans travelling to North Korea for reasons of a table tennis world championship, Bradley K. Martin arrived in Pyongyang to find a world completely removed from reality. By that stage, deeply entrenched in the myth of their demigod, the consistent presence of Kim Il-sung was easy to dress up and glorify. Kim Il-sung had, after all, been there since the beginning. He had moulded his state in his own image, quite literally as pictures of his likeness, emblazoned all available surfaces and even the chests of countless willing North Korean citizens who wished to demonstrate their loyalty to their generation's dear leader by wearing badges of his likeness. Contrary to the understanding of most of the rest of the world, Bradley Martin recalled of the trip, North Koreans generally believed that the South Koreans had invaded the North to start the Korean War and that North Korea had then gone on to win the war. They believed it as an article of faith because Kim Il-sung had told them so. The regime worked successfully to keep at white-hot intensity the people's hatred of American and South Korean invaders and Japanese imperialists. Those outsiders, described as forever hatching new schemes to undermine and attack the North, got the blame for any problems at home. Thus, there was no need for Kim's subjects even to consider the heretical thought that the great leader and his system might have something to do with their problems. Three decades after the Korean War had engulfed the peninsula, Kim Il-sung, one of its major instigators, was still peddling the neat little lie that it had been the work of the imperialists, the scoundrels in America, or the treacherous, lecherous Japanese. The position of supreme leader of this workers' utopia on steroids would have been impossible to imagine for the son born to two Christian Korean parents in 1912. Kim Il-sung never showed signs of supreme foresight or awareness of his destiny. What he did show was ambition, a passion for communism, genuine bravery when fighting against the Japanese, and a strict obedience to the Stalinist method. This latter quality, more than any other, singled Kim out for rapid promotion once the Soviets rolled into the peninsula in summer 1945. Few partnerships in history had such a transformative impact upon the junior partner, but it was through Kim's defining ambition, the unification of the peninsula under his control, that his regime would be truly cemented. By 1979, Kim Il-sung was still making great use of the fruits of that conflict, despite the fact that it had ended in military stalemate, enveloped in the armistice which to this day holds peace together on the troubled peninsula. Fifteen years after Bradley's visit in 1994, Kim Il-sung would be dead, and in an unprecedented move for the regime, it now had to proceed to the question of appointing a successor. Of course, as we know now, the act of appointment was... Never much of a choice at all, because Kim Il-sung hadn't merely established a worker's paradise on steroids, he had installed a dynasty to rule over it. Kim Il-sung died 41 years after the armistice in Korea was signed, yet, according to the technicalities of war and indeed to the rhetoric bandied about in North Korean state media, this war never actually ended. While it may have outlived its Cold War box, the Korean War has proved time and again that it is anything but cold. As far as conflicts go, it remains one of the most dangerous, relevant conflicts of the 20th century, not least because it refuses to properly end. 
Rarely, if ever, had the Korean peninsula been totally cleansed of its larger Asian neighbours in Japan or China. From 1910, Korea was legally part of Japan's empire, administered as though the peninsula was a functioning limb of the Japanese body, even while anyone could see that the Korean people were different to their island neighbours. The wars which shook the rest of the world reverberated also through Korea, as native political movements based on ideas of nationalism, communism, fascism or blends of all three took root and were exported abroad, alongside the wide-ranging Korean diaspora which followed suit. Foreign influences, be they Japanese, Chinese or increasingly those of a Soviet nature, blew in and out of Korea. Yet, while Koreans suffered and brought their ideas across the world, the greatest crime perpetrated by the Korean people was, as always, their geographic location as the bridge to Japan or the buffer which might insulate and watch over China. The geographic, strategic position of Korea led the Allies, slower than one might expect, to come around to the idea of Korea's importance and to speculate over the question of what one might do in Korea now that, for the first time in its recent history, Koreans did not have a big Chinese or Japanese brother on hand to tell it what to do. Of course, such brothers may have been absent, but they'd merely been replaced by stronger, more ambitious siblings determined to carve their own stake in the Korean soil, in the midst of a new conflict which had been birthed in the old. The division of the Korean peninsula along the 38th parallel was to prove in hindsight one of the first and most enduring decisions of the Cold War. The Korean question and the decision to split the peninsula between Soviet and American zones was reached without much consideration of the Koreans themselves, or indeed of the practicalities of the situation. Koreans had never been separated before, yet within a few years this artificial border would come to hold greater significance than any other border in their lives. National identities would be forged and cultivated based on this line. Gallons of ink, generations of blood and countless lives will be lost over it. Yet, for a time, when the Cold War was only a distant idea and peace was a possibility, this line was only a line. North and South Korea, in cooperation with various multinational institutions and their national benefactors, all could agree that this line would be only temporary. This, like so many post-war ideas though, would prove illusory. By the time a conflict had been fought over this question, the only source of agreement was that this line should be made permanent, or at least as long as the armistice lasted. What Kim Il-sung would never tell his odd adorers though, was the fact that he had been merely a pawn in a wider game. It was a game played between the Soviet Union and the United States, and at its core, is the question of why. Why, indeed, were these actors so keen to involve themselves in a peninsula far from their spheres of interest? Why, when a conflict did break out there, did the United States, the United Nations, and then the Chinese become involved? Why did a conflict which cost millions of lives erupt in a place where, before 1950, most people in America couldn't even locate it on a map? The answer was certainly known to Kim Il-sung, and may well be known to his grandson, Kim Jong-un, today. Korea, North and South, became a battlefield in the latest conflict of interest between the two dominating worldviews, communism and democracy, and the two dominant world powers, the United States of America and the Union of Soviet Socialist Republics. Without the Korean War, 
the temporary division of the peninsula would not have been made permanent. We, as citizens of democratic, developed societies, would not have to learn about the most isolated, delusional and dangerous regime in the world, so out of place and apparently backward in the 21st century, trying to make its way. Today, neither South Korea nor North Korea recognises a division, per se, as both claim the distinction of being Korea. If one citizen crosses over the border to the other side, for instance, he or she is given instant citizenship, since they belonged to Korea already. The reality is, though, that Korea is divided, and has been divided, for over 70 years. The other reality is that the conflict which began almost 65 years ago remains one of the most important political facts in the lives of the Korean people, whether they acknowledge it or not. Most South Koreans simply want to get on with their lives, and get on they have, building one of the most technologically sophisticated states in the world, with companies such as Samsung blossoming out of the embattled corner of the peninsula. South Koreans, much like their northern cousins, are unmistakably strong. They've always been strong and proud of their culture, of their history, and of their general hardiness in the face of adversity, be it as a colony of larger Asian powers or as a stepping stone in the Cold War. In the 1950-53 conflict, Seoul would change hands four times, Pyongyang twice. Farms, infrastructure, industry, and people's homes would be destroyed. As many as two million Koreans are estimated to have died in the conflict, although it is unlikely that the exact number will ever be known for sure. Faced with such horrific statistics and with the ruin of the peninsula, it was all Kim Il-sung could do to transform the impression of the war from stagnation and suffering to triumph and glory. The guerrilla soldier, believed at one point to have stolen another man's identity in his pursuit of power, papered over the authentic memories and experiences of his citizens and announced that victory against the imperialism of the West had been achieved. This was his laboratory, it was his ground zero, and while the Korean War had taken much practical things away from him, it had also given his regime something priceless. An enemy. Not just any enemy, but an enemy which the citizens of North Korea had seen for themselves, as the initial optimism of General MacArthur's advance brought him right up to the Yalu River. Americans had been here before in North Korea, and if given the chance, they would surely come back again. Only Kim Il-sung had been able to stop them, and only by opposing their return could this true, cleanest segment of the Korean race remain free. Thus, insofar as it enabled Kim and his descendants to imprison his people's minds for the foreseeable future, the Korean War was a victory for the North, and a defeat for all of us that value human freedoms and wish well upon others, not to mention fear nuclear Armageddon, and like a bit of stability in our world. The Korean War ensured that this would not be. It ensured that the Kim family would remain, to this day, insulated and isolated from the rest of the world and its realities. It is my task, throughout this series, to explain why this war does matter, but also why and how it came to happen in the first place. If you're ready then, I hope you'll join me for the two-part introduction to this series. Thanks for listening, history friends, and I'll be seeing you all soon.
Flexibility is great. That's why there's yoga. Flexibility for your insurance coverage is great too. That's why there's United Healthcare Insurance Plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, United Healthcare Insurance Plans offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. One of these plans may be right for you if you're, say, between jobs, coming off your parents' plan, turning a side hustle into a full hustle, or even missed open enrollment. Want more flexibility? Find out more about United Healthcare Insurance Plans at UH1.com. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.